And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us, and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist, with deep jawbreaker eyes, red rope hair, gumdrop lips, Welcome everybody to podcast number 11. This is Greg. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. So boys, what do we got on the docket today? Well, we got another gag from our good friends Coil and Sharp. And we have an interview with the great Jack Wilson. Of course, we have a reading from Scholastic Books and plenty more shenanigans. <laughs> Plus uh, plenty of radio nudity. Let's get started. Why not? Sweet, 
Those boys from podcast number two are back, Coil and Sharp, performing another practical joke on an unwary pedestrian. This is another in our series, Meet the Celebrity. Every day I bring a famous celebrity onto the streets of San Francisco and introduce him to a passerby. Now, today I've stopped a young man. Your name, please? Michael Hoffman. Michael, uh, I'd like you to meet James P. Coyle. Mr. Coyle is a werewolf. Glad to meet you. Can I ask you this question? Have you yourself ever had any transformational experiences? Uh, you'll have to explain that just a little bit better. Uh, well, insofar as I know, I, I, of course, can't view this objectively. I apparently get uh, a certain actual physical change. The physical change is pretty much limited to my face and arms, where I get, oh, an increased burliness, and I, I snarl, and uh, I become unmanageable at times. Now, uh, you, sir, would you be willing to take this gentleman, Mr. Coyle, into your home and contend with this sort of a beast in the evening? If I were a citizen here and if I were a civilian, I believe I would do it because I've had the experience with these type of people before. I have animal capacities. I am actually part wolf. I have seen him go through this transformation. I have seen his face become wolf-like. I've seen hair grow out on the front of his face and I've seen large fangs appear and I will swear to this in court. I am part wolf-like and I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not totally a human being. Maybe you're totally human, but I'm part animal. No one is totally human. They've all got animal instincts in them. Could we go through a transformation right now and uh, have Mr. Coyle become a werewolf for you on the street just to prove to you that he is a werewolf? And we can do it now. Can we do this? I don't particularly care to see something like that, but... Uh, can we go ahead? I don't know. It's, uh, I certainly uh, don't have any particular desire to see this. I don't know if it's going to prove, prove anything by becoming a werewolf on the streets or anything. I've showed it to the people at the, at the radio station. I'll show it to you. I guess it's all right with me. May okay. I now go through a, a pre-wolf intensity? All right, go ahead. Now I make a wolf sound which brings this out in him, and Mr. Akua will start turning into a werewolf. Are you ready? Now there are some sounds coming from Mr. Coyle. Uh, the transformation is beginning. That's good. That's good. That's enough. Now, he is becoming a werewolf, isn't he? Yeah. Would you describe his face? Well, describe very, his face. And it's got a very animalistic look. Certainly what does. Else? He looks like a wolf. And what would you say about his eyes and his teeth? Very animalistic at that. Do you believe now he is becoming a werewolf? Certainly. You do? Yeah. Mr. Coyle, do you have anything, you have anything final to say in your wolf state? What did you think? Yeah, honestly, it is. What did you think? That's pretty weird. I'll say that much. It is pretty weird. What did you think about look? You know, I thought he was going to attack me. <laughs> Power Records presents the Curse of the Werewolf. Even a man who's pure of heart and says his prayers at night may become a wolf when the wolfbane blooms and the moon is full and bright. The words seem to echo in my skull. 
I struggled with something snarling and vicious within my soul. And when the madness passed... You! Hold it right there! What in the name of... Good Lord! The man I'd attacked was dead. runs like a man there was a bridge a muddy river i dived in my shoulder afire with the agony of a glancing bullet my arm my arm somehow i got away where am i how did i get here what is this place i ran i ran under the light of the bright full moon i ran i must find my way home why my skin is burning my thoughts unclear. Why am I here? But the night gave me no answer, and I felt my dark dream slipping, and in a moment, I awoke. No! What? I... I'm home again. That dream. Each time I have it, the dream grows worse. It almost seemed real. Today, I'm a full-fledged 18 years old. Slashed just as it had been cut in the dream by a policeman's bullet. Suddenly, it all came flooding back. That dream. Was it a dream? Lord, what if it was real? Jack, Jack, it's almost time for breakfast. Yeah, I know, Mom. I guess I don't feel very hungry. Maybe I'll just rest in my room today and think. I had plenty to think about. I didn't know what was bothering me exactly. When evening came, I headed for a lonely stretch of beach. I felt myself fall forward. My vision blurred, and when it cleared, I saw a thing that made me scream. My hand! And in the sudden brilliance of unclouded moonlight, in the reflection of a muddy pool, I saw him for the first time. And I knew! I knew! <laughs> I was a werewolf. I have no way of knowing how I spent those hours before dawn. I must have wandered until the beast who was myself died. When morning came, Jack, Jack, Lord, where have you been? We've been searching for you everywhere. Jack! I heard my stepfather's words only dimly. Can you walk? Try to get to your feet. Lisa, fix him some coffee. I'm okay, Dad. I'm okay. The house was warm. Lissa, you're crying. What's wrong? She can't answer you, Jack. What? Why not? Your sister's almost hysterical. Dad, tell me, please, what's happening? Tell you. If you'd been here, you'd know. Your mother was almost killed tonight, Jack. She's lucky to be alive. Something went wrong with the brakes of her car. She was searching for you, Jack. Searching for me? Then she must have known. And now she may be dying. And it's my fault. All mine. That's one way to see it, son. Please, Mr. Russell, the boys have said it. Let me be with him alone. I wish I could have said something to Dr. Allen. You're mighty tense, lad. You can't blame yourself, you know. I can't. Just watch me, Doc. He gave me a shot. Something to relax me, he said. Just as he was leaving, I heard the phone. Yes, this is Mr. Russell. Unchanged? Yes, I see. But if Mrs. Russell should awaken, please tell her we found Jack. And then it all faded, melting into black. And when I woke, it was mid-afternoon. Mom! Lord, how could I sleep while she... I'd better get down to the hospital, find out how she is. 
Mrs. Russell? Uh, sorry, son, she's on the critical list. That means no one can see her. No one. Sure. Thanks. Somehow I've got to find out where she is. The doctor over there, talking about Lana. That must be her room. I'll just wait, and then... Lord! Is it you? Yeah, Mom. It's me, the professional prodigal son. What's this? Please, try a smile for Mom. Sure, Mom. Jack, Jack, stop feeling so sorry for yourself. Your father would be ashamed. But you never knew what kind of a man he really was. Mom. Don't stop me, Jack. I won't be stopped. This is a, a part of your heritage I always ignored, pretended didn't exist. But now I'm dying, and you have to be told. Come on, Mom, don't say that. You live longer than me. Jack, you don't understand. I've done you a terrible wrong. I've given you a curse. One that will live with you forever. A curse? I don't understand. How could you? Your father was a fine man. A man I met in a small Baltic state, just a student on a holiday abroad. A man I married and bore a son. Ah, Jacob, you're a big lad, eh? Big like your father, bright like your mother. Those first two years were idyllic, yet even then I could sense some dark secret that stood between us, a secret that blossomed like some wicked fruit once a month, when he would lock himself in the single musty tower and remain there for three days and three nights. He told me he studied his books on those nights, and for two years I tried to believe him, until that night of the storm, when a bolt of lightning tore out the tower's side. Later that same night, in the village below... The village carpenter made his way homeward through the street. Who's... No! But he never made it home again. Aye, milady. We need the baron's aid, we do. Everybody knows he's the most educated man in all the land. Why, he's upstairs in the tower. This way, gentlemen. But he wasn't there, Jack. Gone! The demon must have taken the baron, too. But on the following night, as the townspeople hunted in the northern woods... There, in the shadows... Something moved. Not just something, Jack. But the hideously deformed caricature of the man those peasants dared call. Beowulf. Though I wasn't there, I could hear the sound of them shooting silver bullets. I can hear that pitiful monster's cry every night, every moment I try to dream. For you see, the men came to me later and told me the horrible secret they'd uncovered. It's him. Lord, it's the Baron. Father, a werewolf? Maybe that explains it all. How could I have told you, Jack? I'd read the family books. Knew it was an hereditary curse. One that you may well have been damned with. You, or even little Lissa. And the curse? To become a man like beast. First on the night of your 18th year. Forevermore. Whenever the full moon blooms. Well, Mother, you might as well know what you probably already guessed. The curse is mine. But why did it happen to our family? Why us? 
I could stay there no longer. Blackness blistered inside of me. All I could see was the moon. The moon. Something boiled up within me. An unearthly force tore my mind apart. I was changing into a werewolf once more. As my human mind slipped away, I felt the horror. A horror I would have to live with my whole life. Unless I could find out what had caused the curse. Perhaps then there would be a way out. Would a journey to my father's homeland bring the answers? Twenty hours later, and across the large expanse of Transylvania... This is it, Topaz. Rusoff Manor. Among these old books, we're bound to find some of the answers. God knows, maybe all. Jack, come here. I think I've found it. Yes, this is exactly what I've been searching for, Topaz. Here, read this. How my great-great-great-grandfather became the werewolf. It began in 1795. That's a long time ago. Into the night, I read the diary. Words penned by the first member of my family to be stricken by the curse. How I survived this past week, I shall never know it began. But I now fear the coming of each night, each full moon, for the horrors that it brings me. It began one week before, and when it shall end, I fear I will never know. Baron Rusov, I am sorry, but your wife, she's been slain by the vampire. Louisa killed? By Dracula? He threatened if I did not kneel to his power that I would suffer. I must slay him. Gustav, lay my wife to rest. I have work that must be done. I go to kill the demon. Kessel Dracula was unguarded, for there were none in the village below who would have dared venture towards it save I. And so, making my entrance to the fiend's underground chambers was done with ease. You sleep in comfort, do you, Dracula? Then sleep tightly, dark beast, for you shall never waken again. <coughs> the devil screamed as the wooden stake stabbed through his heart. But his scream lasted only one short, breathed moment. For in an instant, there were only ashes where flesh had once been. I threw his coffin in the cold Danube waters below. I thought revenge had been mine. Then I heard a muffled sound, a cry. And heaven help my foolish curiosity, I turned to its source. There was a door sealed with a wooden beam. And idiot that I was, I opened it to find... Hey, girl, who are you, lass, and why are you imprisoned in this living hell? I am called Lydia, sir, and it was Dracula who placed me here. Damn devil! How long have you been here, girl? One month, sir, and kept alive only as long as my blood pleased him. Live in fear no longer, Lydia. The fiend is dead. We walked beneath the moon and I talked, but my conversation was the last thing she cared about. For as the full silver moon loomed above us, I heard a fierce, slavering growl, a wail from a being, neither human nor animal. And when I turned towards it, I saw the face of my death. Her claws glistened in the moonlight, but it was her eyes that transfixed and paralyzed me as my murderer sank her fangs into my neck. And from that moment on, I was cursed. And for the next two nights, beneath the rising full moon, I became a mindless, rampaging werewolf. There's more to read, but not now. But why did Dracula keep a werewolf locked away? What could he fear from it? The diary said 
Dracula could not control the beast as he was able to control others, that there was something about her that made her impervious to his commands, which probably means that Dracula's command won't affect me, and that I'll be the one who'll be able to stop him. Maybe that's it, Topaz. Maybe if I can defeat Dracula, the curse of the werewolf will be broken. You must be careful, Jack. Dracula is very powerful. Looks like I'm going to have company tonight. Unexpected company. <laughs> I see those two young fools from Rose of Manor wish to enter my castle. Good. <laughs> Very good indeed. Dracula leaps from the tower roof and flies once again as the raven-winged bat. Topaz, run! It's Dracula attacking! But before the girl can move... Topaz! Oh, he's taken him. I'll find you, Topaz! That I swear! As Jack Russell scales the peak to Castle Dracula, he is bathed in the light of the full moon, and Jack Russell once again becomes the werewolf. However, inside the castle... My dear young lady, welcome to my castle. I hope you will enjoy my hospitality. Suddenly, he hears the harsh, guttural growling of the werewolf. What? A beast attacks here in my castle? Now he shall finally perish. The battle begins. Dracula commands the beast to stop, to halt. But this is a new breed of beast. It attacks. Dracula's orders affect it not, for the werewolf bites its ivory fangs deeper and deeper into Dracula's neck. Until Dracula turns, his face burning with bloodthirsty rage, and leaps at the werewolf's throat. Back and forth they writhe in deadly combat. And soon it's obvious, neither can win. But neither will lose. You fight well, werewolf. Take the girl and go, and pray that we never meet again. For the next time, I will not be so kind. Until the next time. <laughs> With that, the bat that once was Dracula rises into the night, and the curse of the werewolf remains bloodied but unbroken. Bamba. Jungle boy. Bamba. Jungle boy. You know, Aunt Romaine was most coherent for the greater part of the morning. Right after breakfast, she looked me right in the eye and said that when Bamba comes, she'll be the one to do the talking. What do you suppose she meant by that? I don't know. But she said it just as clear as she could say it, and I understood every word of it. That should be Bomba. Oh, good, it's Bomba. Right on time, as usual. I can't hear you. The whistle is drowning out all the noise. The trains do that. I don't know what you just said, Doctor. If it's the same as the first thing you said or something else, I can't tell. And here's Bomba. Look, that must be Bomba. Bomba! Is this Washington, Missouri? Yes, Bomba. Hi, I'm Bamba. Dr. Peterson. This is Ruth. Hello, Bomba. We will be your sponsors for your stay here this summer. That's right. I want to go home. Why? I do not belong here. I, I am Bamba. He is Bamba. I can run faster than the jaguar and climb like a monkey through the trees. There are plenty of trees to climb here and fields to run through. <sighs> Missouri trees. It's not the same. Bamba. Jungle boy.
Today we have another in our series of interviews, and we are lucky enough for it to be with percussionist Jack Wilson. He's going to recount some tales from his life as a musician and introduce us to a few of the many drummers who have influenced his life. This is another in our interviews with interesting people, and I'm here today with an old friend, my oldest friend actually, Jack Wilson. I've known him, I don't know, since four years old. Was it four years old? He came over to, well, you can say it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Easily kindergarten. Yeah, I think it was before. Anyway, Jack here is, uh, well, he's a master of many things. He's a magician. Um, he's a great voice artist, but uh, one of his greatest passions has been drumming. So, And that's what we're going to discuss today, um, Jack the Drum Master. So uh, we'll begin from the beginning. And how did you get into drumming? I mean, well... I'll tell you, Frank, it was amazing. I, I was a little boy and I always had to go to bed on time, like usual 70s families. And um, my parents would stay up watching The Tonight Show, and I used to always get excited to want to sit and watch it myself. And uh, one night they had guest, guest host um, Johnny Carson introduce Buddy Rich. And, and my dad laughingly knew I was going to love this, and I didn't know what to expect, but all of a sudden this... This man sits down and then they ask him to get on the drum kit, which was a four-piece uh, Mother of Pearl Ludwig, beautiful. And he just goes into this hi-hat thing. And, 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 and from there on, it was just, it was, it was, it was, you know, love at first sight. Yeah, show us some of Buddy. Well, you know, he, it would be funny. He'd go into the interview with Johnny, and then Johnny would say, well, you're going to get up there and play for us tonight. And, and they'd break to a commercial to tease you along. Then I'd wait patiently for the commercial. And as soon as we came back, it would be wonderful because he'd go into the... And then from there, it was just break into it. And it, it was just, you know, like I said, once again, it was, it was incredible. When did you get your first kid after that? They, I mean, after you did, got through with the paper drums and uh, they saw that you had an interest in it, um, what, did they get you a drum set right away? You start playing on the furniture like old Phil Harris or what? Uh... Well, actually, I, they made a deal with because I got U's, not F's. That's beyond, that's called unsatisfactory on a report card. And my mom made a deal with me. If I even made it up to F or, or, or B, uh, I would um, get a drum kit or a car. And I wasn't really interested in driving. And that's still... Um, his no, wait a minute. That's a, you got to go way back because you had it when you were a little kid. Yeah, but, yeah but, but that's the deal they made with me. And then what happened after that, was my friend um, Tracy Stevens was his name, came um, on a weekend to visit me, and we sat in front of the TV glued watching all those 70s uh, cartoons, and all of a sudden my parents get back. My mom comes through the door and says, aren't you going to help your dad with the groceries? And I was like, oh, God, dang it. Hang on, Tracy, I'll be right back. So I'm all, you know, not feeling too excited about that chore. I go up to the station wagon, which they had a panel station wagon at the time, and in the back was a complete real drum set. Nice. And, and it was it That was, was a, that first old one that I that I used to play the oompa on. Exactly. <laughs> front of me That's funny you remember that. I was that. in the cowbell. That's classic. You remember and that. And used to play on that all day long. I mean, how many times were you practicing? <laughs> oh, man. I just, I wanted to be like all my heroes, so I just would do whatever it took to get that part that I heard on a record down. And sometimes it would actually be all day. That That's no exaggeration. And um, I was a geek, so I really had nothing else to do. And I would just go nuts. Yeah. 
I, I saw you practice it all the time. You, your friends would get all bummed because you'd be practicing on the drums and wouldn't go out to do stuff for Boy, you are exactly right on that. <laughs> now, we want to talk about, we brought you here for your expertise about drumming in general, to talk about your heroes and the local people and the famous people and the different styles of drumming in that. When You, you were first in, in love with the big band type of stuff, or at least the Buddy Rich version of that. Oh, yes, yes, very much so. I, I was very targeted to the uh, big band sound. Well, then I, you know, I went on to um, basically, uh, you know, fall in love with rock and roll. And it was funny because um, I just, it was teeter-tottering between rock and roll and big band. And it confused everybody around that would come and hear me. But um, I know you could always swing from the very beginning. Did you, yeah, that come that. naturally right from the beginning? Oh man, I loved it. It was, that was actually the very first thing I practiced because I knew that I would be a while before the other stuff came in. So I thought, well, you can't beat just going. Show us, show us an example of swinging. Sort of. You know, that's cool. Swing always usually started out with. And that would always continue with the you know, Show us an example of do it, do this, uh, do a regular drum thing and then put swing to it. Yeah. So we can see how you yeah, swing you, a thing. Yeah, that's a good example too because your basic drum thing would always start with a 4-4 four, four time to kind of like... What's the swing part of that though? Well, the swing part would be mainly, this is called the ride cymbal, which you're hearing now, which is. And that is always the biggest diameter cymbal on the drum kit. So if you ever see a drum kit, you see this giant round cymbal like a tabletop. That's always known as what they call the ride cymbal. And that's because it has a continuous ride on it. I never actually understood the, the, the terminology on that one, but that's what they call it. And um, so you, we know it today is always when you hear like in the bell, the bell is the very upper part that connects the symbol to the ride stand. And that kind of protrudes at the, at the top. And that gives you this. And that way you could go back and forth without having to break off the symbol at all. So you could be going. What are some of the other guys now after Buddy Rich? Who were some of the other people right away that you that you started falling in love with, listening to, and getting excited about? Well, you know, uh, Gene Krupa came right in there because I saw the the Salminio movie called The Gene Krupa Story, and he was amazing. Let me give you a little taste of that. I'll tell you, man, you know, it's funny to this day, I can't stop doing that. It's like, if I get on that beat, I don't want to stop. I just want to keep doing it. It was highly addictive because it's comfortable. It's like you could lay back on the, that drum itself by going...
And of course, he was very famous for a song by Benny Goodman called Sing, Sing, Sing. And that's basically what it did. Is just... And uh, oh man, that song changed my life. So, okay, with those two big band guys, what was the first rock guy that really influenced you? I'll tell you, man, there should be a church for this guy in my heart. That's Peter Chris of Kiss. And that was the first drummer, the rock drummer, that, that inspired you. Oh, man, are you kidding? It was like I, I won this talent show in the seventh grade by playing Wipeout and Smoke on the Water with one guitar and no bass or vocals. And we actually took first and second place. And I had the pleasure of playing with another drummer even, so let me correct that and back up. There were two drummers, me and a gentleman by the name of Jay Haith and Steve Garcia on guitar. And then we eventually got Joe Bartlett on second guitar, and we swept it. And um, they didn't know what to do, so they said, well, let's take an audience vote. And people were screaming so loud, the kids were tearing their like, sweaters off. My mom was almost ready to have a heart attack, didn't know what to do with it. And it was like the Beatles, it was crazy. And so they said, let's go ahead and give these guys first and second. Hey, now, so, so the uh, Kiss was like the first thing, the oh. first rock band ever? Because I don't remember. There wasn't the Stones. There wasn't whatever. No, man. You know, I'll it be honest. Chris. Everything pretty much flew over my head except for jazz at that time. But then I got that Kiss Live album. And at first, I didn't know what to do with the makeup and the characters on the front. But my neighbor, Steve Townsley, told me that I got to get this and hear it and everything. And then Greg Sneed, my other friend, said, yeah, you got you got to hear these guys. And then a, a dear friend of mine, Mike Post, mentioned the same thing. So, you know, you get three people telling you this. Yeah, I had to have it. So we got a little gift certificates at the end of the, um, the talent show for $25 each. And we, I ran, literally, I honestly ran to Warehouse Records and grabbed it. It's funny because it was like two left. And I remember bringing it home and turning down dinner and just having to listen to it religiously. Put some Peter Chris on there. Well, he did a famous solo on the record called, well, the song was called 100,000 Years. And um, it kind of went like this. back into the song. Hey, now, you were telling me some stories about Peter Chris that one time that, that, that they would lift him up and down, but they used a forklift instead of some kind of other trick, and then they he got to some gig where, the, what, they lifted him too high and he's, he can't raise his sticks up? He's, it's great. You know, one of the first gigs that kids ever got, they uh, thought of the idea, 
one of the producers thought, well, let's have the drum set rise up into the air, especially during a solo. And so they got a forklift and put it Raleigh behind the curtains so the audience couldn't see it. And this was under the drum riser, of course, if he goes up in the air during the solo, and it's fantastic. Well, they did a gig in a very small ballroom. I wish I could remember the name of it, but it's hilarious because he got, he got pinned to the ceiling so hard that his head was almost being smashed into his neck as he played, but he still did it. So yeah, I'm sure the audience didn't even notice, but I can. I'm imagine. sure they know. <laughs> it's, it's pretty. It's pretty hilarious, and I don't. That's mean, like a straight up spinal tap. I don't mean to laugh at Peter of any pain that he, you know, anguished during that moment, but it was hilarious. <laughs> hey, now let's talk about some of your other favorite, more obscure drummers. Oh yeah. Just in general, talk about the the history of drumming, but also just. People that well, drummers, people should know. Yeah, I'll tell you what, man. Like Ringo Starr really did it for me, and then of course moving on. Oh my gosh, Neil Purchase floored me and nailed me against the wall. That guy's amazing, and no wonder they call him the professor. Um, yeah, I mean it, it was amazing what he could do, and it took me a long time to finally like even touch his style and everything. And I to this day, it's a challenge. But I finally caught on to some of the things he was doing. And, well, show us an example. It's kind of cool because the one thing I loved about him was on the ride cymbal. It's almost like he kind of did a, a jazz thing, but he always going. <laughs> but the thing that was amazing about him is he would always have these amazing stops like <laughs> while he's doing rolls. So 2112 album, of course, I think was everybody's first love. He does the 2112 song. And he does that famous roll. And boy, I'll tell you what, man. It took me a long time, but I finally got it. And here it is. I'm sure that's a pretty ragged version of it. But you can imagine just what, what he did in those songs. It was amazing. Yeah. And, uh, okay, some other guys. What about yeah. the, the, the old um, other jazz drummers or early rock drummers? Yeah, let's see. Oh, boy, you know, it's funny because I want to credit all of them. And there's billions. I feel so indebted to every one of them. But there's a, oh, man, let me think here. Um, oh, gosh. Well, I'll tell you, Foghat came into play not too long after the Kiss album. And they were, of course, known as Savoy Brown at first. But... Boy, the generating pulse behind that was, of course, Roger Earl. And um, I just recently fell back in love with them again and got to hear interviews by him. But he had a unique style. And the thing I really liked about his style was the way he hit the crash cymbal as he would be lancing everything else. And I'll show you exactly how he did it. Like, this, like the song everybody's probably heard, Slow Ride. It was great. That was pretty much the straightforward part of the song, but his style would always do this type of thing. And I just love the fanfare of that, that, that simple crash without breaking the other things around him. A lot of drummers stop. An example of like maybe going... 
there's just that little blank spot. It doesn't bother me. That's obviously their way of playing, but Roger never broke it. He would always go. And that really got me going. That's very cool. I never paid attention to that, actually. I love it. <laughs> oh, I, hey, I'll tell you right now, honestly, if Roger, for some reason, is listening, I just, I really adore that about him. And hey, what it's about uh, uh, the drumming there in Yes? You know, uh, what's yeah. his name? Oh, yeah. Uh, how can you not forget Bill Bruford? And it's, 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 it's incredible because I think everybody started out with the, the album Yes Songs and not for Agile and all that stuff was on it. He's amazing. And the thing with him is he really brought African rhythms and polyrhythms connected with, with just a fraction of, of a straight rock beat. And, and it was, it's very hard on the drummer trying to learn it. But he's wonderful. And, and of course, you, you know. Yeah, I went and saw him when he played with King Crimson. And he was playing, he had all these electronic drums up the wall, up the sides, everywhere. And he would just run around playing them. And each one would be a different kind of drum, too, because he hit one and even be like a bongo. Or another one, it was some kind of Mideastern exactly. drum. Exactly. Anyway, give us uh, God, some example of him. Yeah, you explained that perfectly, too. Now, like I said, always take yourself back almost like if you were in Africa or something. You'd always do crazy stuff. I'm going to give up my best shot. <laughs> Rolling Stones. What about the drumming of Rolling Stones? You know, I'll tell you, Charlie Watts, I, I think really, in a sense, next to, you know, of course, Ringo Starr probably got everybody started. And the great thing about him, and, you know, Mick Jagger even put it great in an interview, that he, he was amazing at putting it in the pocket. And I think that's where drummers really need to send themselves back to before it gets too exciting, is in the pocket. I'll give an example, like like Honky Talk Woman is great. And I'm not even talking about the cowbell intro, just the major beat. And it's great because it grooves. And it's like this. And that's, and, and, and let me give you an example too. Now that's grooving right there. But of course the same beat, if you apply it to just general 4-4 four, four time, it would really just go like this. But when you take it and groove it, it becomes this. And he never did anything like this. Or he wasn't into that. He was into driving the band with the most groovest, solid in the pocket beat he could. It was always have that, you know. And and you know, if you if you're really passionate about the history of drums, that's really where it should begin. What about do you know the, about the drummers who were um, Buddy Holly's drummer and, and those guys, or the or the Beach Boys drummer? 
You know, the Beach Boys drummer, I'll tell you, probably got every surf drummer or punk drummer alive because he had that great style. What's really cool about him is he had that cool surf beat, you know, that... The surf, surf in USA was great. I'll tell you, the, it's just a simple thing. And I, I, I laugh because it's so simply great. It's surf in USA. When he does that one break where it goes... The drums was probably the main contribution to that song because otherwise... That's a what's a, who's the guy who did that? He no, just, it's it's all that's a lot of the Beach Boys songs are Chuck Berry songs. You mean Surfing USA? Yeah. Because, oh my gosh. Yeah. That's amazing. I had especially no Surfing USA, but not the drumming. The drumming is all them. Yeah, exactly. How about, how about the the um, the Ventures? How about their drumming? That, now that you know, really honestly, that's probably truly the king of surf drumming. And unfortunately, due to my ignorance, I don't know his name, but um, I get so caught up with thousands of them. But yeah, he totally had that, you know. Of course, the rolls always had that wonderful. You were mentioning uh, surf and punk. Did the punk guys take a lot of surf uh, drumming? Well, it's kind of funny with the punk scene. It's almost like they took fabricated beats, like kind of like the polyrhythms, and mixed them in with that doo doo dat dat doo doo dat. And it's great because it would make it more kind of like you know, like like. That's it. I, I never was naturally very good at playing super fast. You've got to give punk drummers, and especially speed metal drummers, a very big round of applause for being able to keep a speedy pace up without breaking. It's, it's amazing. You know, I, I really encourage people that are out there that just are interested in the fast-paced drumming to listen to speed metal groups like, you know, Megadeth and Slaughter and definitely pay attention to the uh, the punk scene. Okay, hey, and you talked a lot about Ringo Starr. What's some of his drumming style? Yeah, a lot of his stuff was almost visual, and I really liked it because he would side-sweep the hi-hat, where a lot of drummers would just hit it straight on. His stick would go side-to-side, side, lancing it, you know, and it was great. And, and it, But he kept that wonderful hi-hat thing. And, of course, remember that you got to love the famous Ringo Starr drum solo. Now, take it, a lot of people are tongue-in-cheek on it. I think it's genius. But all he's simply doing is this. That's, that's a raw version of it. But yeah, I love that solo. And that was on, um, I believe it's um, your birthday. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it is, once again, it's just funny because he's really just going. You know, but hey, it's not even a matter of just he did it. And it's beautiful. Yeah, well, it was unique. Yeah, it's great. Ringo Starr is awesome. Hey, oh, by the way, for all those listening, he just got inducted to the Hall of Fame. 
Yeah, congratulations, Rinko. Hey, what about country drumming? Because you played with the Lance Hawkins. Yeah, Lance and that, Hawkins. That's you make most of your money playing with Lance Hawkins doing country music. What, what did you play with Lance Henderson? Lance Hawkins. Lance Hawkins. Sorry. That was like 1980. Uh, I'd say probably 84, something like that. I might be wrong, but I know for sure it was in the 80s. It was the early 80s, and. Um, you know, just like a lot of country out there, especially the roots of country, it's great because you got that almost polka beat. And I kind of like it because it always has that. What about the Alabama stuff? Alabama, like I said, was great. because They took real pop rock and blended it in with country and they did it well. Like, like a great example is if you ever hear the song Mountain Music. And that always had that, you know, kind of that beat like. Yeah, once again, Mark Hendren on drums, fabulous group. And, um, they even had another song called Have to Have a Fiddle in the Band. And that always, it was great because they stuck out the real country roots for the background, but the guitars would give you that pop sound. I don't know what happened to them today, but I sure loved Alabama back in the 80s. And they had a lot to contribute to the mixture of country and popular music today. And, and Charlie Daniels Band, I mean, those guys are great. And I think they kind of did the same thing, but it was great because you'd almost be rocking out. The next thing you know, the spittle's coming out, and the devil went down to Georgia. So it's beautiful. Now the majority of country, you can't tell what it is, you know. I, they keep telling me this country, and it sounds, that sounds like pop. I can't even, yeah. you know. I mean, do they bring in a, a, a bad love affair and a dog or something, and that it, makes it country? It's almost like it kind of turns slowly into rockabilly. But there's a lot well, of the rockabilly. Like, me hey, too, me what's too. a rockabilly? It's really... It's almost really the same kind of type of thing. You know, it always, everything with, with a country lick always has a. Well, rockabilly, a lot of stuff is just like a speedy rock kind of thing. You know, like. But, um, like, like the blasters now, they're more blues. But I always thought they kind of had a little rockabilly tinge to them. And that actually swung. So, like, there's a band in San Luis Obispo, I don't know if they exist today, but they're killer called Bingo Night. And, you know, they would get things going like... And that kind of thing, and hope I'm doing it right. But anyways, yeah, it, it, just, it, it just went on and changed over the years. And what, what are the band you played in Sacramento? Up in Sacramento, so you said one time you were up in a, it was like a lumber camp or something in the middle of nowhere. There was a big party and you, you had a big jam session. Yeah, there. it's funny because that wasn't even truly a band. Like we didn't even have a name. It was just some really great gifted guitar players and myself. And it's funny because my whole beginning of music for at least probably 10 to 15 years was almost like without a bass player all the time. And um, I remember I was with this guy, Ronnie Myers, and we finally got a great bass player by the name of Doug. And I just can't remember his last name. It was so long ago. But we had to kind of teach him how to play as it went along. And he got good. And uh, we, we actually went in and, and cut a, 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 a recording studio song. And it was great. It was called Flying Carpet Ride. And I remember I was all proud because I got a break in it. And I can show you the exact drum beat on the break. It was great. I'll, I'll follow it in with the beat. Thank <laughs> you. 
and and I loved it because it reminded me of the Mary Tyler Moore thing. And, and if you think <laughs> what's of, a Mary Tyler Moore? Oh, thing? it's exactly that. Basically, it's kind of like. the end part of it but it's kind of like the Bob Newhart show and the Mary Tyler Moore show inspired me to actually do this break nice hey now you came to a point where you got a the um, bass player Chris Post that you, for, you had for a long time that's with Paradox yeah now that that thanks for asking was a very serious project it was funny because it was just three of us Nick Nielsen Mike Post and myself and uh, yeah, you got their tattoo on your leg, so it was pretty serious. Yeah, I've got them tattooed <laughs> on my leg. It's funny people to this day ask. And um, we were an original band, very inspired by the Doors, and um, it's great because we were trying to do all original material. But at the time we came out with it, it was almost kind of on a dark side, kind of a dark mystical side compared to what was going on around us, like Journey and Van Halen. So we had to run to catch up, but we were we were taking it very serious, trying to get signed. Yeah, you were playing the whiskey, all kinds of places. Yeah, it was great. We got to do the troubadour and and the whole shot. And I remember at the troubadour, Chris and Nick weren't quite ready, and they already introduced us. So they told me just get your butt down there and do whatever you can. So I came running down the stairs because it's upstairs are the dressing rooms, and right in front of the audience is the open stage. So you get to come downstairs. It's kind of dramatic. So I come running down the stairs all excited, jump onto the drum seat, start playing, and I have a boom mic right in front of me. So I'm like, how are you doing out there? And I, it was great because <laughs> while I'm doing that, I'm going. <laughs> and, and I'm doing that, and they're hearing, hey, how's everybody doing out there tonight? <laughs> and and then I'm looking back going, when are you guys coming on, man? <laughs> and I'm dying. Luckily, the crowd's eating it up. But I'm dying, and I'm right on the last beat of a song we called Midnight Nightmare. And that was great because that was just going good. Finally, Nick comes down and goes into the midnight nightmare. <laughs> and I'm just like going, you guys are now, nuts. And you're exhausted at this oh. point, and you got it to play. Oh, it's so hilarious. Good and thing it was, you were young. And Chris is like looking at me all like, hey, everything's fine on the gap for you guys. But um, it worked. It worked. And the great part about it is it really added to the dramatics. And um, we got asked to play back there a few times. And... Um, that was your main band. I mean, if you yeah. counted up all the years anyway. Yeah, thank you actually for bringing that to my attention because I look back and I get all confused with all the, the wonderful stuff I did. But yeah, you know what? They taught me a lot about discipline. We were all learning and it was just a great experience to see what it was really like to try to go get a record contract. Now, now uh, play another song, drum, drum part of, of one of the other songs from their band. Man, I'm trying to think of something that would be interesting too that we did like... It was crazy because the thing about that band to start with is I had to do, I was doing a lot of swing beats. So it was crazy. The style of a lot of the songs we were doing was kind of like this. Just imagine the song building up to a crescendo and the drums going...
crazy. In fact, we did one change in the song that I really liked. It was cool. It went kind of like this. It went. I wouldn't wait for Nick to say anything. I would burst out with, thank you, good night. I like the way you dropped a stick in the middle of that and still recovered. Yeah, you know, I didn't even <laughs> For everyone who that. couldn't see, he dropped a stick in the middle of that and he grabbed it up and, and just, you can't even tell it was dropped. <laughs> I love divulging secrets and yes, you're right, I did. Yeah. Hey, uh, you were with another band, Topeka, up in San Luis Obispo County? Yeah, that was a great band. Uh, Paradox was over. We kind of like decided to go our own ways and uh, we know we... We look back at a great time, but um, I got up to San Luis Obispo. And my whole ploy was to not play for a while and just be a normal person, you know, and get, get a job, do that kind of thing. Had a little apartment. Yeah, so anyways, back to um, the end of Paradox Days, and I move up to San Luis Obispo. Thanks to uh, Frank Ryberg right here in front of the mic that's doing my interview. Uh, his brother calls me and says, hey, come on down, you know, and I just went down there to just become a simple person and citizen of that county and uh, basically uh, go to, you know, get a job, get a, had a little apartment. I was obsessed with rubber mask collecting. I'm a monster freak from the beginning. I was my true love before drums. And I had, you know, a bunch of Don Post studio monster rubber masks. And I was involved in that real heavily. Then all of a sudden I got an itch and my insecurity kicked in, like, I better be doing something, you know. So I went back into drums, found a place called the Drum Circuit, owned and run by Steve Hillstein, a very dear friend of mine. And uh, he was inspiring and getting a kit built up for me. And I met this guy named Mike, who's attending at Cal Poly University. And um, we meet up through an ad, you know, and I'm like, hey, you know, I'll, I'll see what these guys are about. And I, we found a bass player by the name of John, and he was great. And we had a whole different style. We were trying to do all originals once again. And this was more of a fun college band setting where we weren't trying to get a, like a record contract. And um, we call ourselves Topeka because Mike was from Topeka, Kansas. And we couldn't think of any other names. So <laughs> it was funny because he was obsessed with a, a, a teacher there, a professor by the name of Dr. Lewis. So one of our first songs we learned was called Dr. Lewis. And it was great, and it just had a simple beat to it and everything. But um, we ended up doing a tape, a cassette tape that we were sending, you know, getting, getting all the college kids to buy. And it was pretty fun. It was a lot of fun. For the front cover of that, we didn't know what to do, so we found an old science fiction movie uh, poster. I, I don't even know what it's from. It's funny. It was a scientist holding a brain. And, and you know, we had glasses on the perfect scientist thing, and we put that on the front. And uh, what was cool was they gave me a drum solo, and I was all excited, like, yes, I get it. And I got it on one take. So I'm polishing the apple on my chest with confidence. And check this out. It was pretty cool. just a quick thing and I fell in love with it all, all the way. That's cool. How long were you with Topeka? It was, it was a few years. Yeah, Topeka went for two years and um, 
it was fun. And all we did was just little small clubs in San Luis Obispo. One of them was called the Rose and Crown. But um, it's funny because um, with Topeka, we did some cool little clubs there. See, the college scene is so fun down there because you can play for a pizza joint and they're going crazy. So we did uh, we did the Rose and Crown, which, you know, unfortunately soon closed. But we kept going because it turned into Woodstock's Pizza, which is their pizza chain. And uh, we had a lot of fun. It was great. And I'd really like to know what happened to those guys. I need to get on Facebook. But it was fun. And that band Topeka meant a lot to me because that was my first real, like, going in the studio and actually doing a song I liked. And hey, what was the uh, the F Street? Was that uh, Diamond Halo or what was that group? That was Frank Street in Oxnard, California, where I grew up. In fact, it was it was great. Now, I got to say, those were probably the most top-notch musicians I ever played with. And what was great is the bass player was from another great band that was doing well there. They played heavy metal. Called, they were called Noble Savage. His name's Adam Porter. And then I had, like, I used to idolize their guitar player. And I finally get to meet this guy. His name's Vince Scott. And he was, like, the, to me, God on the guitar. And he joined. And then my second favorite guitar player, which was Ricky Aldridge of, of a band called Orpheus, was the band that Ricky Aldridge played in. And he joined along. So, man, we had a pretty strong band. And we caught, the name I still to this day didn't like, it was called Diamond Halo. And we did a few gigs without a vocalist. And what's funny is we finally came to the realization we need a singer. Well, we got really lucky, and I met a guy named Jeff Morrison. It's Jeff Morris, 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 Jeff Morris. And uh, this guy could sing, man. He had an octave range that would go through the ceiling. So he was great. And we did all these cool songs like Panther on the Street. And, you know, we went for the whole commercial <laughs> thing. We did some covers. A great band, as you probably all know, Y&T. Um, always stands for Yesterday and Tomorrow. Um, you know, their great drummer, Leonard Hayes, inspired me to beg these guys to play this tune called, um, I, I believe it was called... Um, Mean Streak, and um, it was like, and then we like did a lot of Scorpions covers, like Hurricane, and all that stuff. It was fun, but I gotta say, man, those guys were like that was a learning experience because they were far better than I was, and I learned to be up to their level, and that really got me going. And I miss those guys. I remember Jeff was a bit of a, a he was a New Yorker, as a bit of a like a mafioso scam artist. It was so funny. It was hard to tell. What he was up to, what his true story was. I know he eventually you went up to Vegas with him, with and he was trying to get a weird comedy act with you to do a Vegas act. He just had all kinds of strange ideas, and he, and he was always so hyper. It was a new idea every second. That, well, I'll tell you, you, you really explain this stuff better than I even can. It, it's great. I'm sure that, that you just put a perfect picture out there for him because it was, it was funny. We ran into his old friend when we got there, and this is the day after 9-11. So you're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, that's when you were in, decided yeah. to go to Vegas to, right. to make your name. <laughs> yeah, he, it was classic because we get up there and he comes up with this real energetic idea to get this comedy thing going because he had a friend up there that was still there and let us stay with him. And his name was, uh, I just know him as Bucci. His last name was Bucci. He was really Italian. And I'm trying like heck to, to remember his first name. And I, I don't mean to be insulting to any of these guys. It's just my memory. 
But he was a really nice guy, but it was funny. He had the whole mafia thing going on, too. So we were going to do this bit where, like, you know, there are two mafia guys, and, and I come on like a stooge, and one of them's got to carry me off, you know, because I just got shot or whatever. And it was just, it was pretty funny. But it was actually, I got to admit, it would have worked. It really would have worked with the right money and backing like anything. But, of course, it fell apart, and I ended up right back here. <laughs> hey, now, you had a lot of celebrity meetings over your career. Um, oh, yeah. Like one time, what were you doing? You were doing a sound check, and who came out to talk to you? Oh, man, this is a great story. This is back in the 80s. I am doing a, a, a one of the studio sessions. We were cutting a song, uh, I believe it was Midnight Nightmare, and uh, with Paradox, back to them. And I'm in the downstairs at the drum booth, and I'm like rattling away trying to get a mic check. And all of a sudden, this guy walks in, gentleman with, you know, go well dressed like a businessman, puts his hand through the cymbals at me, shakes my hand, and says, Hi, I'm Bill Coin. And Nick had told me hours before, you know, the whole story of Kiss and everything being discovered. Well, Bill Coin's the reason why Kiss even came about. And I'll tell you what, man, I was, you know, pretty full of goosebumps at that moment. But he's all, hey, good sound check and everything, you know, and I'm thinking, yeah, he's being polite. But <laughs> it was it was really, it was an honor. And then, after that, this is a crazy thing, I, I left the band. And the bass player, Chris, kind of panicked and said, hey, we got to finish this album out. So, you know, Midnight Nightmare was not enough for them to record. So they went to Capitol Records, of all places, and asked for the list of studio drummers. And Bill Ward of Black Sabbath was on it. And here's his home number. He lived in Seal Beach right next to a Taco Bell. And, oh, my God, man. So Chris finally gets a hold of me and says, hey, you know what? We're probably not going to be able to afford him. But I ended up getting to know him. And my bass player was in, in kind of recovering with, with um, N.A., and, and basically, Bill Ward was there with, um, with Alcohols Anonymous trying to recover, and they became friends. Then I get to meet him. Oh, my gosh. We go to his house, and Chris is, you know, we're in Chris's old Capri, and he looks at me, smiles, and says, you know where we're at? And I go, no. He goes, well, we're getting ready to go meet Bill Ward. And I got real nervous, and I almost didn't want to go. And we get up to the door, and this, you know, he had so much stage presence even when he opened the door. And he had the thick accent, everything was bloody. And it was great, you know. And he told us all about his, you know, recording Heaven and Hell and some of the older albums Black Sabbath did. And it was really cool. I went to use his restroom, <laughs> and there's gold albums on the wall. Nice. And it was just cool. I met, I, I, got, I had my celebrity drummer, uh, I met the Spinal Taps drummer in the restroom while we're mm -hmm. urinating together in, um, what's the deli over there, Jack? Oh, that's Cantor's. At Cantor's Deli. He was playing with another band, and he started laughing, and he turns to me and points out uh, that the uh, the little urinal block says, say no to drugs. That's great. <laughs> I did it really? Did it literally yes. say? Yes. That is hilarious. So I met him. Oh, hey, now, who are the ones that compliment you over the years? Well, you know, I, I got to jam with Bill Ward in a garage with my two friends. And they um, they got on the guitars and they, he asked them, what do you guys want to play? He's on my drum set. And I'm just freaking out. And all of a sudden they go into, of course, they wanted to play Paranoid, which is a Black Sabbath hit. And Bill was fine with it, you know, and they did it. It was really cool. And then Bill gets up and says, hey, you're playing much better than I am today. And he handed me the stick, so I jammed. And when I came out, he was just shaking his head going, wow, you're really, you're a bloody good drummer. 
And I was just like, wow, nice. thank I you. I must have you know. put you on cloud nine. Yeah, and the thing I want to really, I want to do Bill Ward's style for a second because it's so killer. One thing I love about Bill, if you listen to any Black Sabbath tune, is he was the king of being, being laid back, but with a powerful, ominous presence like this. so much more to it i'd love to go on but but he uh he was just really good at that laid back kind of almost like a john bonhamy kind of style and uh he was actually friends with john bonham at some point and i remember he was discussing a concert that they both went out decided to have a little extra fun at the bar and ended up being at the concert late and it was funny because my bass players at that concert and remembered them being late they had to delay the concert and it was all because both of them got in a bar fight with two people in the bar. And <laughs> the security guards didn't recognize them when they came back, and they forgot their passes. Even when you're a rock star, you still got to pass security to get, you know, this is the forum. So they were obviously some bars probably still there. Got, got in your, your regular English rock drummer fight, and, um, and they, they, they weren't recognized, so they were a little late on But it was really cool just to know that those two were friends, you know, because John Bonham is incredible. I'm sure everybody out there adores his style. And um, even though we lost him in the late 80s, it, it's, it's really, oh, actually, what am I talking about? He died in the late 70s and um, early 80s. And he, uh, he had that wonderful style with Led Zeppelin. And it was just, I don't even have to do it or say or talk about it. It was just so remarkable hey uh who was the guy who called you on the phone you were talking oh about that was bill ward because i was oh, all that's, that's I, ward again. I was all bummed out but you know real quick too i want to mention i i, I got to do this though you know back to john bonham of led zeppelin you know there was one song that i love so much and i'm going to do just the famous beat from it. i think anybody remember it and i love it because it was it just went simply like this but it was awesome That was and pretty simple. <laughs> I think that changed a lot, though, because a lot of drummers would use it after that. And, and you know, but he did it with such a thunderous, deep beating power. And he was phenomenally talented because he really could use his hands. Like in, um, I believe, I forget the name of the album, but it was his drum solo, Moby Dick. John Bonham had a very interesting sound on his snare. And it was great because and Moby Dick, the famous drum solo, I always loved that intro, and it always had the, it was just like this. And, and it just, you know, that changed everything. I mean, I know drummers today they claim that is the greatest rock song, you know, alive because of that drum solo. Nice. Hey, what about uh, when we went and saw Deep Purple, but it was more like an all-star band? Who was the drummer then? Oh, man, that's Ian Pace. Oh, my gosh. I, I got the pleasure of seeing those guys at the Ventura County Fair last year. And he, man, that guy was incredible. In fact, Buddy Rich really inspired me a lot on the fast snare work, but 
he man he was the second one because he had kind of that that quick snare snap and it was great like a highway star oh man it's wonderful because he does stuff like this And it's always followed by that killer punchy hi-hat. And oh man, it tires you out just thinking about it. But he was he was the master of that, and it was really cool to see him back with Deep Purple again. That's cool. Hey, who who is um, Blue Acer Court's drummer? You know, that's that's a good. I'm glad you asked that because I really adored those guys. And he had a famous drum, so I'm not going to do it because it's really tiring. But, you know, I'm pretty sure it was Rick Borcher or something like that. And I hope I'm saying the name right. But they would get different guys in and out. Like, I think he came back and then left. And But whoever did the Enchanted Evening with the Reaper on the front of the album, that guy ripped because this is something I missed. But everybody told me live. He would reach down during his solo and he would grab a, a big, like almost like parade size mask of Godzilla. And he'd put <laughs> nice. it on his head during the solo, and then they'd go into Godzilla. And that was great because if you all remember, it went something like this. Of course, I'll go ahead and do a little bit of the solo. I can't resist. It was pretty cool. It was great. It was kind of like... And it, it just, it, it's really hard to do, but it was just a great showing off of the snare and cymbal work that he could do. It was perfect. Hey, who was Kansas drummer? Oh, man, that's Phil Earhart, man. That guy's great. I hope I'm saying his last name correctly. It was either Earhart or Earhart. But um, he was with them all the way. I've seen him three times live. And the funny thing about his style is he, I always said he was like the king of the reverse roll. There's so many songs that they did where he would do a backwards roll. And it's just cool. It's very tasty. I'll give you a little example of it. So your basic roll from, you know, top to bottom would go. Well, he would go. Nice. And it was, it was really cool. I think it added a lot to the dimension of their music. Yeah, that's cool. What about Van Halen's drummer? <laughs> yeah, it's great because that was Eddie Van Halen's brother. A lot of people forget that. Of course, his name's Alex Van Halen. The funny thing about his style is when they first did their very first album, Van Halen, um, it, it was great with songs like Running with the Devil and, and, and The Cradle Will Rock and great powerful tunes. And uh, he really had a sloshy hi-hat style. It worked and it was beautiful. In fact, their first name when they went out in Pasadena, they were playing home parties in Pasadena at first under the name Mammoth. And uh, his style was, was kind of like this at first. And uh, I'm probably not even doing justice because his hi-hat was really, he could actually do slossy hi-hat 
perfectly, and that's hard to do that right. But he was kind of the king of that, and he always had the great cymbal stops. And um, he had great feet. In fact, later on, of course, they came out with that one album, and I forget what it's funny. I forget the name of the album, but who could forget Hot for Teacher? I mean, that's got to be the all-time greatest drum beat I've ever heard, and it's mainly his feet. So, I mean, it's really amazing to listen to it and see. What he's doing is basically imitating a Harley Davidson starting up on its engine, and he's doing it with his feet. So, you know, I mean, I could do it with my hand just to And he's got a double bass? Or oh, something. yeah, but he, boy, I'll tell you what, man, that guy knows how to do it. Because it's a crazy beat, because, like, the upper part's going... And, you know, while, while, while Eddie's doing, you know, you know, I mean, his feet are like going. You know, I'm doing that with the Tom Toms and I'm worn out. He did that with his feet. I, I was a guy in art school that saw them when they were early days, uh, when they were doing the parties in Pasadena. And he had the big um, car horn thing that they used for part of their stuff and it was always breaking down they were swearing at it and everything you saw those guys yeah that was a that was a guy who was a painter friend of mine he was also a hang glider he's the one who found that whale for us i you know i honestly <laughs> i've known you before before kindergarten and i don't think you've ever told me that before. oh yeah that, that was uh, you got how close were you Oh, no, I wasn't there. Oh. He, he was there. Hey, but did he say it was killer? Was it <laughs> oh, pretty... yeah, I'm at a Van Halen party. Uh, <laughs> oh, you kind of freaked me out this there was, for a minute. This was in Pasadena. What was their name back then? Mammoth. Yeah, that's, yeah. this had to be the Mammoth days because they were just playing parties there. But I got, you know, I really do want to give Alex Van Halen a lot of perks on that because that is a very difficult beat. There's like, right, you can look on the internet, and there's various people that can do it. But, you know, he did it with such... It's almost like he wasn't even working at it, and he did it fluently. So, yeah, if he's out there listening, man, you know, here's to you, brother. How about Tommy? Oh, man, Tommy Aldridge? Oh, man, Black Oak, Arkansas, man. Woo! That's Jim... With Jim Daddies and the Rescue, that was one of their hit songs. Um, Tommy Aldridge is probably one of the, the gods in my book of drumming. Uh, he's amazingly athletic. Uh, when I when I started listening to him was when he moved from Black Arkansas and went over to Pat Travers' band. And if you've ever heard Pat Travers live, oh my gosh, boom, boom, out go the lights. I, I, I honestly got to humble and tell you right now, as much as I'd love to, I can't do it. He, he, but one thing he did do, though, and I, I tried faking it the best I could, was the triplet. And I'll, I'll give you a little taste of it. And, but he does it like phenomenally. It, it's amazing. I'll, 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 this is it right here. It kind of, if to learn this, you have to start it like this. You know, imagine this guy doing that. And what was interesting about him is he wore kind of like a white loincloth kind of looking thing. And people would always laugh and say, look, he's in a diaper. But, you know, I know he did that so he could get his whole physical thing on with the drums without being restrained. And um, he was very fit. He was very thin, lean and fit, you know, very toned. And um, he's definitely like one of the greatest inspirations in my life. I wish I could meet him. He went on to gain really, really a lot of popularity with um, Ozzy. 
and he did the like crazy train that's him but we also have to give credit to lee kerslick who did a lot of the studio albums but tommy would go out on tour oh okay but, but hey, Lee Kerslick is no slouch. Believe me, he doesn't have to take a backseat to anybody. Hey, now you, right. speaking of the jazz and stuff, in high school, you were in the jazz uh, ensemble yeah. in the high school. Yeah. And they let you in there even though you couldn't read music at all. <laughs> that was pretty funny, man. Mr. Ingalls, the music director, you know, when he got ticked off, man, he like threw chalk at you and anything that was able to pick up. And um, I didn't know how to read music. I was lazy-minded. I didn't care as long as I could play rock and roll. And um, I wanted in that jazz band. And they had a break. They had a, an opening for a drummer. And he, he liked my playing, but he was like, Jack, you got to learn how to read music or I could get fired for putting you in, a, in, a, in, in position here. And the trumpet guys are kind of like giving me the stink eye because they were kind of like, hey, man, you know, we had to learn how to read and you're letting him in. So I got into jazz band, and it's funny, I got in very late, and I was only able to play with them out live to do the graduation. So I got to play graduation, but here's the funny part. I, I only learned, like, one song with them. And there were two songs. One was Malaguena, and that was crazy because it went like this. And uh, that's, that was it was pretty gnarly doing that one. But then they, they, they went right after my own heart and they wanted to do Love Boat. And at that time, I was watching Love Boat on TV religiously, you know, Captain Steubing and Gopher and all that. And it was a great show. I liked it. But the thing I really liked about that show was Jack Jones singing the theme song. And uh, there was even an episode where they actually show Jack Jones with a mic in his hand singing it before the show starts. And he's on the ship singing it. So that was kind of a special thing to me. So I got really attached to that song. And, of, of course, a lot of you remember, you know, the love boat. You know, it's exciting. And I remember and, they were talking to you and, and they asked, well, who can can you play it? Because I knew you couldn't read the music. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. and you played it. I said, how are you doing this? He goes, I'm just singing it as I'm playing in my head. That's how I can, uh, yeah, and it, it, it's that's funny. How I can meet all the marks. Yeah, and, and I, in fact, when I was playing for you earlier, I was doing it too. You probably can hear it bleeding through the mic. It's funny. But the rendition of it was great because it always started with that great disco hi-hat. And, and I had to get that down really good. So it basically went like this. Um, Something like that, but it was a. I just always one thing I you know to disco. I always loved was that. You know. And it was something like that, but it was fun because I got to do graduation. I got to play it out with that song, and then um, thank God the trumpet guys um, you know we got we got to be friends instead of getting their their bad luck every time. It's crazy. Now, I'm doing Love Boat with the jazz band. I don't know how to read a lick of music. And the music teacher's scratching his head. How the heck did you hit the marks? Because I hit every mark. And I had to admit to them, it was kind of funny. Well, I sang it in my head, like I do with a lot of things. I'm sitting there singing the theme for the Love Boat in my head. And out loud, if they had a mic, they would have heard it. 
And, and, and so I had to admit to him in front of the whole class, well, you know, I sing the whole thing in my head. And, and I couldn't resist, so I kind of sing it roughly. And I had the whole trumpet section just ready to jump all over the place laughing hysterically. And I think that's how I won the trumpet section over from hating me to death. Because, you know, they were very, you know, it was staunch. I mean, they had to learn their notes or they it it were out. You, you made first trumpet or, or it was it, you know. So they ended up liking me. I kind of broke the ice with the whole thing. But to this day, I still sing the tunes in my head. It's sometimes out loud. So it's good I don't have a mic. And <laughs> <laughs> Hey, now, so you were talking about disco. What, is, what were disco, different disco drummers and, and, and Man, do some of their... Well, you did some of their beat already. What was well, different? Well, you know, it's funny. I got to really, I got to tell you the truth. I got so into the music part of disco, which is funny for me because I always used to focus on the drums. Well, it, it, disco was something where I kind of fell in love with the musical part more. So I got to be honest with you. I don't think I can actually recall a famous disco drummer because it was always so studio. Though, you know, all those disco tracks you hear were a lot of times in the studio, like like Taste of Honey and, um, you know, even Donna Summers. It, a lot of that stuff was done in the studio with their people. So Donna Summers would show up in the studio and they would, the drummers and all, they would, they would already be there. And then when she was done, they'd move over to Studio B and finish their tracks. But, um, you know, it, it, if you get a chance to ever look into the studio world, uh, there's there are quite a few famous drummers. Now, Hal Blaine who represented Ludwig for years um, and, you know, just in scholastic, you know, um, notebooks on how to read the notes and everything. He was big. Well, that that's that's the wrecking crew. That was Tommy Tedesco, Hal Blaine. And unfortunately, I can't remember the third guy, but it's 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 great because now they finally got a video out about it. And when you heard the Carpenters or any of those tunes back in the 70s, even now, Karen Carpenter live would play the drums and sing. But he did all the studio stuff. And they played studio for a lot of different things. Oh, for a lot of people, man. In fact, if you go way back, 60s through the almost all of the 70s to um, Captain into Neil and all that stuff, you know, what you're hearing on the cut, the studio cut, is Hal Blaine on drums and Tommy Tedesco on the guitar. But then if you went and saw him live, which a lot of times I noticed with the disco groups, they rarely did a lot of live stuff. Like Donna Summers would go out and... You know, but I mean, hey, I would love to tell you who those great drummers were because they were fabulous. But they really brought the, you know, the Bee Gees. I mean, that's great. Like staying alive, you know, and that was great stuff. Let's talk about some of the local drummers because you grew up in Ventura County and San Luis Obispo County, and that. Who were some of the local musicians, just in general, but drummers and bands? You talk about Sira Thungle, which. Uh, um, who was the drummer in that? You know, I, 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 I want to say that the, growing up here in Ventura County was just as big of an inspiration drum-wise as any of the star drummers out there because I got to really learn from some of the best. I, um, I got the, the chance to play side-by-side side a couple of shows with a drummer by the name of Dean Zimmer or Dean Zimmerman. And if I get that name wrong, I, I, it's like I said, I'm, I have a bad memory problem as we all do when we get older. I think it was Dean Zimmer. And anyways, this guy's fantastic. He plays double bass and just tears it up. In fact, he almost had like a really killer kind of Ian Pace type style, but it was all his own. And uh, he, um, you know, of course, was um, stricken with some kind of um, handicap. And I, I, I don't know exactly what it was because I never really focused on that because his drumming was so powerful you forgot about it. 
but he would have to crawl to the drum chair and, and get on the drum chair by lifting his upper body and pulling himself up to it. And um, his hands were, you know, he was crippled to the point where his hands weren't like a normal, really straightforward wrist. So he had to bend at each wrist, which caused the sticks to go off at a strange angle. But, but this guy played like, like I mean, it's amazing. And he, he was fortunate to meet some great drummers himself. And, and so he was a big inspiration and a dear friend. And um, I'll tell you, the one I really idolized, though, that really got me like, oh, my God, this guy's a god, was Jerry Miller. And um, he's now a truck driver. But he, uh, he played for years with groups like Silver Wing from some Silver Strand Beach. And then eventually went bands like Prowler, who played around. And... Um, and he was just, I mean, oh my gosh, this guy was phenomenal. And he's still around, thank God, with us. And um, then, then I kind of, I, I started pondering into the jazz scene again and the big band scene. And um, I'll tell you, Richard, Richard, um, oh yeah, Richard Vandewick is one of the best drummers I've ever seen in my life. Plays right here today as we're talking, he's probably playing here in Ventura County. And he, uh, he was one of my biggest inspirations. Used to have a steady gig back in the 80s at a club called Charlie's. And uh, he was just fantastic. And I had the pleasure of going to see him this year. And he was playing some big band stuff. And kind of a jazzy Dixieland style. And he just nails it to the wall. So these guys were really a big inspiration to me. There's a lot of great drummers what, out there. What are some of the other local bands? Yeah, I mean, because Sarah Ungle... Remember you talking about that one? Yeah. Had the two skeletons on their knees praying. Well, you know, I was talking about the punk scene. I'll tell you, now this is crazy. It's awesome. The guitar player, now I, I forget his name because I never really got to meet him. But um, I know they were led by a wonderful frontman by the name of Mark Hickey. I was fortunate to meet his sister. But uh, he, you know, tragically and sadly enough, he died. Um, and that was in the 80s. But his sister was so wonderful to tell me all the stories. They were in a band called Aggression. And I believe they're pretty famous even around the world now. As is, is um, you know, the, the speed punk kind of scene. Yeah, was that and, the Nardcore? Yeah, that you got about? it. Pretty close. Yeah, very good. It was pretty close to that. Yeah, I, in Oxnard, they have a thing. They, it was a little small movement called Nardcore, or somebody called it Nardcore. I don't know if they called it themselves. And that I, was punk rock in Oxnard. I almost kind of want to say it was more like surf punk. Okay. But, but you know what's funny about aggression is, I, I, to really give them true credit, it was their own kind of thing. And, and it's hard to define it, but they made it quite big and popular. In fact, they're mentioned, along with especially the guitar player, in, um, I believe it's the History of Rock and Roll Encyclopedia. Oh, nice. Yeah, that's cool. It says aggression in there. They they were they were top-notch, man. They made it big. And, and God bless Mark Hickey up there because he was a great front man. And uh, people really adored what he did. And, of course, we had Dr. No. And that was with uh, Brandon Cruz. You all remember him probably back in the 70s in a very small... Yeah, he was our neighbor. He grew up, came to our parties and our birthday he, parties. Yeah, I stole his Hot Wheels and his orange Hot Wheel tracks from him when he wasn't looking. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's a... He's still going. I don't know what he's doing today, but he was um, big with that band and was very good friends with Bill Bixby from the series The Courtship of Eddie's Father at that time. Can you tell some, uh, tell some crazy stories about local bands 
or famous bands. This is crazy. Oh, well, I'll tell you, you know, Frank, remember when we went to see REO Speedwagon yeah. two years ago? I always adored um, Alan Gratzer. And, you know, that guy's, I, I hope I'm saying that last name right. And it, but he's just phenomenal. And he's basically not the original drummer for REO Speedwagon. But once they did switch over from the actual original guy, he led them all the way up to the, you know, the, the early 90s, if not the mid 90s. They, they, he was replaced by another great drummer. By the, they call him the Hitman, and I forget his actual name, but he's known as the Hitman. And uh, we got to see him with him. He was a, he's a really great drummer. But Alan Gratzer had the style that I really liked because he, I always called him King of the Ride Symbol. Because he made that ride cymbal just slow down nice and sing out. And you actually really got to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, it, it, them calling it a ride cymbal in drumming, I think the, the word ride applies to him well because he really put it out there. And I'm going to try real hard to do his style on the ride cymbal a bit. And um, it's great because um, that song, Heard It From A Friend Who or whatever it was called on their um High Infidelity album, that whole album he did, and it was just great, and his style was cool because it kind of laid back like this. It's great the way he never got like way ahead of himself, made the song see. He was great at making the band lay on him perfectly. And, and that's really the true job of a drummer, is that the band can lay back on you. And I think he was probably one of the best at that. And I'll tell you one song, another song, not to dwell on him, but they, they did. And I always forget what the title of it is, but it began with a tom-tom fill. And when me and Frank saw them live last year, he, he started out, in fact, he came out first, jumped on the kit and went into this, and it's great, it was kind of like this. It was cool. It wasn't it, Frank? Wasn't that great? I love that concert. Oh, man. It's crazy because like, they sounded exactly like the record without having that fakey sound. It was all from the heart. We are slowly running out of time here. Or quickly running out of time, actually. But uh, I want to thank you, Jack Wilson, for talking with us. It's always interesting and uh, to delve into the world of drummers. I want you to end with one last story. This is the story you told me a long time ago about the one-handed drummer. Oh, man, this is a fun story to tell. It's so cool. Buddy, this is way back, too. I believe it was probably even the late 50s or possibly even the 60s. But to me, that's a long time ago. 
Uh, anyways, it's great. Max Roach, another very famous drummer, uh, you know, grandfather of drums itself, basically, um, is like, you know, with Buddy Rich and they're in a club, a small club, and they're both kind of having a fun debate about who does a better press roll. And the press roll is crazy because, you know, it's a very compressed roll, being that it starts one of the 36 essential rudiments that any drummer learns starts with this. It's two taps on each hand, alternate. So it'd be left, right, right, left. And it should sound something like this. And that's a little bit broken up, and that's my fault. But um, it's basically, you know, imagine that even more compressed and speedy, you know, really fast. So it's great. In fact, a great example of that is to listen to Stars and Stripes by John Philip Sousa. And you'll get a good example of it. But anyways, they're in a club. They're both debating back and forth who does the best press roll. And in a fun way, they both grab two chairs, put them back to back so they can't see each other. And I guess they either had some kind of thing in front of them, uh, could have been a tabletop to an actual snare drum they may have went and grabbed out of their, their, um, their car or whatever. But they're both doing press rolls back to back so they can't see each other. And they both hear each other doing these real compressed rolls. And um, Max Roach just couldn't resist. So he goes, wow, you know, I got to see this. So he turns his head around and Buddy Rich is doing it with one hand behind his back. <laughs> nice. Very good. Well, thank you, Jack. It's always interesting. And uh, thank you again for joining us here. Thank you. Now, once upon a time, down south of the borderway, there lived a little family, Samba Mama. And her little daughter, Little Red Rumberhood. Now, Samba Mama had baked a delicious cake and given it to her daughter to take to her grandma across the way in the woods. So, Little Red Rumberhood was gaily off away singing, I have a cake, I have a cake for my grandma. But little did she realize as she's walking there through the woods, there hiding behind the tree was the villain, Tango Wolf. Tango Wolf sprung upon her and said, where are you going, little girl? She said, I'm going over to my grandma's house to bring her this delicious cake. But little did she realize that Tango Wolf was planning to get there before her. So taking a shortcut through the woods, Tango Wolf got to grandma's house and knocked upon the door. very big door and a voice from within said who's there there's only I your little granddaughter and I have a delicious cake for you come in said the grandmother unsuspectingly Tango Wolf walked over to the grandmother's bed and before she realized he sprang upon her and devoured her then changing into her clothes he jumped into bed they're waiting for the little red rumble who was gaily coming along singing I have a cake I have a cake for my grandma and the knocking upon the door A voice from within said, who's there? There's only I, your little granddaughter, and I have a delicious cake for you. Come in, said Tango Wolf, disguised as the grandmother. Little Red Rumhood, walking over to her grandmother's bed, noticed that she didn't look as she always did. She noticed her big white teeth. She said, Grandma, where did you get those big white teeth? Yeah, said Tango Wolf. They're my new 1970 plates. I just got them at the license bureau. And then she noticed all the hair on her grandmother's face. She said, Grandma, where did you get all that hair? She said, yeah. She says, how you fix the blade? With that Tango Wolf, ripped off the sky, side, chased Little Red Rumhood around the room. She started yelling for help. Help, 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 Congo Woodsman! And Congo Woodsman heard the scream and he came quickly with one quick sweep of his axe, he destroyed the wolf. And then taking out the grandma who was very much alive inside the wolf's stomach, they all lived happily ever after. 
it could happen, you know. And now we're going on an imaginary tour around the world on the SS Rhythm. Here our ship is off the coast of the Congo, and we hear the sound of jungle drums. And then we go to Spain, we hear the sound of the Spanish bolero. And the Spanish tango, la la. And then we go to Italy for the rhythm of the tarantella. La, 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 la. This is the tarantella. Happy days and happy days, and this is the way to do the tarantella. And then we go to our Viennese countries for the rhythm of the Viennese wars. La 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 and that's the way to do the jig. And then we go to our Slavic countries for the rhythm of the Kazatskit. And to Poland for the rhythm of the polka. Do the happy polka. And then we go over to Israel on our imaginary ship, the SS Rhythm, and we have the rhythm of the horror. Oh, and across the ocean to South America, where we hear the sound of the bolero rumba. Oh, Bessame, we do the rumba and the cha-cha, la-la-la-la-la-la, do the cha-cha-cha. Everybody does the and the pachanga, I love to do pachanga. My mother does pachanga, my brother does pachanga. Everybody does the pachanga and the mambo, I, I, mambo, I, and the bossa nova, la, 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 and the merengue, I, I, merengue, I, I, merengue, I, I, merengue, and the samba, ba, 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 um, Brazil. That's where we get the samba from. And then we come across to the good old USA where we have the sound of the blues. I'm as blue as I can be and the rhythm of Dixieland. Oh, when the saints go marching in. When the saints come marching in. And then the rhythm of rock and roll. And the rhythm of the Peabody I got rhythm, you got rhythm I got rhythm That is the rhythm of the world Bamba Jungle Boy Bamba Jungle Boy Ruth, hmm? your name comes to us from the Bible. Did you know that? Oh, yes, Dr. Peterson, I knew that. So where does this Bomba the Jungle Boy get his name? I honestly don't know. Now, Helen, who's talking on the phone at the moment to uh -huh. her boyfriend back east or, or west someplace, well, her name Helen comes to us from the Greeks or the Romans, one of those ancient people. 
I wish we were ancient now. We've lost that quality. Bomba hasn't. No. He'll be a cold and frightened little boy so far away from his jungle home. Oh, yes. Summer in Missouri, hot and humid as it may be, is no match for the steaming spunk holes of central Kunjubi, hmm. where snakes slither upon each other like hairs on the same head, hmm. hidden from the light of day by the other hairs above them, which are not like snakes, but like trees. Are they trees? No, they're vines. Oh. They're like snakes, but with leaves. Oh. Bamba. Jungle boy. And now, pretentious readings from Scholastic Books. into a strange and forbidding world. Two figures enter from that shimmering portal into this world. They are here on a mission of rescue. Rescue from this dangerous land in a dangerous time. Scholastic Books presents Lester Del Rey's Tunnel Through Time. There wasn't anything to it. We just stepped through. Perhaps there was a little physical reaction that would have hit a person in good condition. With me, it was a slight chill. Goose pimples. But that could have been emotional. We stepped into the ring. We took one step, and the scene changed. That was it. We were outdoors, and the sun was shining, and there was a breeze blowing. And my first thought was, we haven't gone anywhere. We can't see them, but they're still here. Dad standing at the edge of the platform, hiding everything behind the wall he built, and Gabe and Dave at the control panel. The rainbow ring had stayed with us about ten seconds, and then it faded. We were standing in a small grassy park with trees and forests in one direction, and rough bare rocky country in the other. We were at the border line between the two. Off to our left was a big swamp that went for a mile or so, and then vanished into a green forest. We were both scared. Do things look different to you, I asked. Bigger, maybe. Hotter, he said. Well, we won't win anything standing, he said Pete. So which will it be, the forest or the desert? Just then, our interest was drawn elsewhere. Everything around us began to shake. Earthquake, I pleaded. Volcano, Pete said. And he was right. There was a sound like far-off thunder and straight ahead of us, over the harsh rocky desert, a great spout of black smoke smeared up into the sky. The earth continued to shake and the black smoke bellowed, and then close to the horizon, a cushion of red fire. A big one, Pete muttered. I hope it doesn't break things up. I remembered now that the age of the dinosaurs was also the age of the volcano. Fire spouts dotted the land and the earth was a great furnace with safety valves close to the surface. The volcano's vibration of the earth lessened and became more like the grumbling of an upset stomach. We moved on towards the forest. The temperature dropped sharply as we went into the shade. The ground underneath was damp, but quite solid. Most of it was impassable unless we followed the path of a great beast that had forced its way through. There were many bright colored tendrils and vines and creeping parasites. They were strung out along the path like bright ribbons. Watch out for snakes, Pete said. 
although I imagine most of them will be near the swamp. I stop suddenly. Look, this doesn't make sense, our slogging around in here. Tom will be expecting help. He'll be looking for us as hard as we're looking for him. So? He'll stay in the open, and he'll expect us to do the same thing. Well, that makes sense. Pete said, then we'd better... Look out! I saw pure horror wash into his face and turned to look where he was looking over my shoulder and saw a multicolored nightmare slithering silently towards us. At first it looked like a human face. A hideously evil old man with a jaw full of terrible teeth lunging toward us through the heavy growth. This old man had a stringy beard of many colors that streamed out behind the great savage head. Then I saw the long, twisting body behind it. It was a garishly colored sea serpent of incredible length. We had warning because the great reptile was approaching us along the path. If this had not been the case, it could have been upon us from the cover and we would not have had a chance. Luckily, we had our rifles. I brought mine up to my shoulder and fired. Of course, I missed. Hitting the twisting, slithering thing would have been a miracle. Pete stood frozen, staring at the monstrosity, his eyes fixed on it like he was under hypnosis. Run, I yelled. Try to make for the open land. There's no protection for us here. All we could have done in the jungle growth would have been to get tangled up and become easy prey. I fired once more and turned to run. Run, I yelled again, and in desperation I slapped Pete's ashen face. This brought him out of it, and we were both kiting it back the way we had come, with that horrible hissing sound coming right behind us. The snake was gaining ground, but not as fast as I feared it would. The hissing, like the continuous escape of hot, angry steam, grew louder, but the edge of the forest was close. We dashed out into the open, and now Pete got his voice back. This is crazy. Out here he's going to get us for sure. It was going to get us in there for sure. Out here we can fight. But I have got a hunch about something. Follow me. The reptile had hesitated at the edge of the forest, and I glanced back and saw it more clearly. It was even more hideous than it had appeared in the jungle, but now I saw that its frightful beard was a lot of creepers and tendrils. The snake had hooked onto them as it came through the jungle. I pointed out the way towards some rough, scaly ground I had seen beside a rock pile. And as I kept glancing back at the snake, I saw that it was hesitating because it wasn't sure of its ground. The head stood six or seven feet tall, and the rest of its thirty or forty foot body was used to wind around and give it locomotion. As I watched running sideways, the snake began hissing louder and moved the front part of itself back and forth along the edge of the grass. A cross move it, covering perhaps ten or fifteen feet as I would hunted for a place to push through onto the new surface. That gave me hope that my idea would work. When the snake made a plunge into the grass and came forward again, I faced back around and caught up with Pete. I debated stopping and taking my chances with the rifle and the pistol, but decided against it. If my idea fizzled out, there'd be plenty of time for a last stand. That way, I yelled, into the rough stuff. Ahead of us was about two acres of level ground covered with coarse gravel and small bits of boulder. Straight in, I said, over to the other side. We'd come close to the far edge when the snake, clearly planning to have us for dinner, reached the field. We stopped and waited. Get out your 45, I said. If it comes through, wait till it gets 50 feet away and then blast its head. And hope we hit it, Pete muttered. The slugs will stop it if we do hit it. The snake was closer to us now than it had been at the edge of the forest and was probably hungrier, 
I met it less cautious and it slithered onto the rock field. But then it hissed horribly and stopped and pulled back. What's wrong with it? Why does it come for us? I hope it's because the rocks cut its belly. There's deep water around here somewhere. That's a sea serpent. But this is the wrong age, Pete Whale. They're all dead by now. Okay, I said grimly. Just go tell the buster over there that he doesn't exist. Maybe he'll get confused and leave. Pete was gripping the butt of his 45. Why not try a few shots? Maybe we'll get lucky. I think maybe it's stopped now. I hope so. If we hit it and hurt it, it might get mad enough to just go right through the rocks regardless. The serpent was hissing horribly. We tried the rocks again, but they weren't the same soft, muddy bottom of the sea or the marshes. Its belly wasn't conditioned. But the snake had intelligence of a sort. This showed when it began to go around the rock patch and get to us from the other side. But when it got to our side, we were on the other. This could go on all night, Pete said. All right, let's try a few shots then, I said. If we stay out here much longer, one of those flying skeletons may come along and then we'll really be in trouble. You go ahead, Pete said. You're the better shot. I shouldered my rifle and centered on the huge head, moving with it, waiting for a still moment. The head moved back and forth horizontally. Then when the rifle was beginning to get pretty heavy, the snake had a motionless moment. I pressed the trigger and I was lucky. I didn't kill the thing, but I scored a hit that brought out the granddaddy of all hissing screams, and the reptile began thrashing wildly. It had been hurt. Some instinct for its native habitat asserted itself, and it headed back into the trees.
Well, we're almost out of time for this podcast, but we're going to throw you one last bone. Frank, what do we've got? August 19th is Gene Roddenberry's birthday, so we thought it only fitting to honor the great man with a few Dr. Demento favorites. Here's to Gene's undying legacy and to our undying need to poke fun. So signing off, this is Greg. This is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next time. Space. The final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Booby Prize. Its five-year mission to sell t-shirts, toy phasers, plastic communicators, and anything else we can think of to seek out new life in old plots and complications to boldly go where everyone has gone before. Star Trek. Captain's log, stardate 6935.2. We are in orbit around the planet Schwartz. Engineering to Captain Jerk. Engineering to Captain Jerk. Jerk here, what is it, Snotty? Captain, the warp drive mechanisms are generating excess antimatter. The pods are overloading now. If it continues at this rate, are can be responsible for the safety of the ship? Don't have a spaz, Snotty. Ugh, but the whole ship's gonna blow itself to pieces, Jim. I want answers, mister. Well, I tried shoving a wiener on the warp drive, but it didn't do a bit of good. By the by, would you have a wee bit of mustard up on the bridge? Mr. Schlock? No mustard, Captain. Analysis, Schlock? It would appear that Lieutenant Snot is about to eat a wiener without mustard. As always, your logic is impeccable, Mr. Schlock. However, I was referring to the emergency in the ship's warp drive. I would say that the program is at too early a stage to permit solving any serious difficulties, Jim. Recommendation? Suggest you wait for further plot complication before undertaking corrective measures. Logical, Mr. Schlock. Perfectly logical, Dr. McCoy. I'm a doctor, not a scriptwriter! Warning, this is a plot complication. Warning, this is a plot complication. Warning, plot complication plot showing up on ship's sensors now, Captain. I'm switching to visual. What is it, Mr. Schlock? Computer data is coming in now, Captain. It's just what we need. A colossal negative space wedgie of great power coming right at us at warp speed. Uh, Mr. Lulu, commence evasive actions. Yes, Captain Jack. Evasive actions ineffective, Captain. The wedgie is turning with us and closing rapidly. Estimated time of impact, approximately 16.9 seconds. 15. Bridge to engineering. 14, not here, Captain. 13, What's not there, Snotty? 12, I said Snotty here, Snotty, give me full power. Get us out of here fast. Ah, uh, I cannot do it. The toilets have backed up into the warp drive. It'll take time to make repairs. Time? Mr. Schlock? One. Wipe out. Readings are off the scale, Captain. I have not encountered this phenomenon before. Damage report. Lieutenant Manura? Fascinating. What is it, Mr. Schlock? The force field seems to have passed through us and entered the surface of the planet Schwartz, yet tricorder readings fail to indicate any such energy from the planet. Opinion, Mr. Schlock? Insufficient data, Captain. Into the elevator, Mr. Schlock. Let's beam down to the planet's surface so I can find an alien to fall in love with before the program's over. You usually do. Ain't I something? 
Uh, Mr. Lulu, you've got the con. Thank you, Captain Jack. Elevator, transporter room. I'm fine, how are you? Elevator, I said transporter room. I'm fine, how are you? Oh, forget it. Elevator to engineering. Beam us down from here, snotty. Aye, aye, Captain, you're locked on coordinates now. Energize, Mr. Snot. Remarkable. There is no record of any such civilization as this on the planet Schwartz. Look, Schlock, here comes a car, and feast your Vulcan squinties on that driver. Far out, Captain Jerk. Oh, want a lift, sailor? As a matter of fact, I do. I'll say goodbye here, Mr. Schlock. Now you'll have what you always wanted, command of the booby prize. And you'll have what you always wanted. What's that, Mr. Schlock? A bleach blonde in red convertible on planet Schwartz. <laughs> Ain't I something? Well, say bye-bye to Starfleet Command for me, and I'll see you on Hollywood Squares. Bye-bye, Jim. I thought he'd never go. Schlock to booby prize. Snot here, Mr. Schlock. What's not there, Lieutenant Snot? I said snot here, Mr. Schlock. That's Captain Schlock. I? Make it one to beam up. Laws of physics, laws of physics, laws of physics, kind of change the laws of physics, laws 
Jim, it's worse than that. He's dead, Jim. Dead, Jim. Dead. Well, it's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it. Not as we know it. It's life, Jim, but not as we know it. Not as we know it, Captain. Yeah, it's 